Hello, and welcome back to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast that brings you analysis from the front lines of business. My name is Peter Tufano, and I'm the Dean of the Said Business School at the University of Oxford. This series is based on a program of live virtual events that we've been running since the first days of the pandemic, covering topics from social innovation and social justice to female leadership and high-impact entrepreneurship We aim to help our community respond to this period of unprecedented turmoil. As a world-leading business school, our focus is on tackling complex global challenges. Our purpose is to prepare business leaders of today and tomorrow to make this world a better and more equitable and more just place. You can find all our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Episode 6, Digital Platforms, Saints or Sinners? From social media to entertainment and commerce, digital platforms have become part of the fabric of our daily lives. We could even say that the world now runs on exchanges of all kinds of things on digital platforms. But are they always good for business and society? Or is there a darker side to this platform economy? In this episode, we're going to join Oxford Said experts from the Faculty of Marketing as well as from Innovation and Entrepreneurship for a discussion of the pros and cons of digital platforms, and an answer to the question of whether they are saints or sinners in our world. Chairing the discussion is Andrew Stephen, Associate Dean of Research and L'Oreal Professor of Marketing. And I'm going to hand over now to Andrew, who's going to introduce the panel. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Leadership in Extraordinary Times. Today, we're going to talk about digital platforms and are they good or bad for business, for society, for us as human beings? Uh, And I'm joined by three of my wonderful faculty colleagues here at the Side Business School who are all experts uh, on the various aspects of digital platforms. And we're going to have a discussion about this very question. So I'd like to welcome Cami Krolik, who's an Associate Professor of Marketing, Pinar Oskin, who's a Professor of Entrepreneurship and Innovation, and Felipe Tomas, who's also an Associate Professor of Marketing. Welcome to the three of you. Uh, I think we're going to have a pretty interesting conversation today about various facets of of digital platforms, uh, which really encompass pretty much everything we do in our daily lives, whether it's social media and messaging and, you know, sort of consumer-facing platforms that we all maybe know or love and hate, who knows, through to banking, through to the systems that underpin many of the services that we all rely on and our economies rely on, digital platforms are critical. But the question we're going to address today is, well, is is this always a good thing? And we'll come to the panel in a second. But the other thing that we're going to do today is do a little poll. And so if you want to give us essentially your answer to the question, digital platforms, saints or sinners, basically thumbs up or thumbs down, and we'll see those thoughts in a second. It seems appropriate, though, that we, first of all, set the scene in terms of what do we mean by digital platforms? And, and Pinar, I'm going to come to you for that question. What are digital platforms and why are they important? Sure. Thank you, Andrew. And it's a pleasure to participate here. Um, digital platforms are a digital version of what we understand as exchange platforms. So, you know, if you grew up in a place where you had a street market, that was a platform. It was just not digital. You know, any place where interaction takes place is um, a platform. 
digital platforms are special because they have the ability to use data from each and every member, whatever platform that may be, in order to do things like matching between different sites or just simply allow communication electronically between different members. So a digital platform is really a platform that happens in the digital realm. Okay. Um, so let's start by thinking about social media as digital platforms. Obviously, these are for exchanges of information, entertainment, commerce, and, and all sorts of things. So I'm going to come to you, Cami, first. What's going on in social media with respect to this question of saints or sinners? Well, of course, uh, that's a very complicated question. Um, so there's many different ways that we could we can think about it. So um, I'm sure that you all have been seeing featured in popular press and, and a lot of research lately kind of talking about some of the maybe sinner aspect to digital and social media. And so we are seeing things um, reported in the literature, such as social media use being associated with things like depression and kind of contradictory to what you might think, even social isolation or feelings of loneliness. So it's very interesting that uh, some of this research is emerging that some of these platforms that should be facilitating connections and encouraging people to interact with others may be having some of these opposite effects. Um, we also know social media use has associated with other negative psychological outcomes, such as feelings of malicious envy. And that's where um, malicious envy is typically in the literature something where you see something that somebody else has and you want it, but you don't want them to have it. So like if, if a promotion happened, it would be like, I don't want them to have a promotion. I wanted the promotion instead. And so things like malicious envy, uh, social comparison, all of these things are kind of outcomes of increased social media use but I don't wanna paint a totally bleak picture. So we know that um, there are negative outcomes, but there are also positive outcomes. So there's other kind of literature existing that at least among UK adolescents, um, they reported greater life satisfaction the more that they use social media. And social media use is also associated with more and stronger social ties in some instances. Um, it can be a really great platform for people with um, bereavement to find social networks of support. Um, we also know that oftentimes it engenders stronger communities and feelings of belongingness. So we are seeing kind of this contrast. Sometimes we see these really negative psychological effects, and sometimes the literature points to more positive or at least neutral effects of social media use. So um, it's, it's obviously a complicated question, and it's still kind of outstanding, but we do see positive and negative effects. And so I'm going to come back to you um, soon, Cami, about sort of when is it positive or when is it negative? Um, but I want to go to you, Felipe. Um, in the meantime, and just get your take on, on this as well, given, given you know, your research also uh, involving social media, particularly how, how businesses use social media. Where are your thoughts on, on this, uh, as Cami said, complex question? Yeah, um, as Cami well said, it's, it's rather messy, right? Um, and I'm going to leverage Pinar's kind of opening and saying, like, this is broad. So you, you have to consider also how this new development of digitized platforms have enabled for all sorts of new business models. Um, so not only are very large companies using it to reach out to customers, understand them better, generate better insights, um, and generating new avenues for profit and better performance, 
but also it's opened up the door for really tons of SMEs, just small and mid-sized kind of companies to suddenly breach into the market where they never had an opportunity. Um, one of the most interesting things, even though we vilify some of the largest platforms today, because of their auction-based vending, I guess, of their space and advertising, it's actually democratized access to that share of mouth. Uh, so if you really want to say something about your business, if you're a very small company and you have to compete with a mega multinational, it would have been impossible in the age of just magazines and television. Uh, you just couldn't buy that space. But now with this immense division of things, suddenly the smallest players have access. Now, that's no guarantee that they're going to succeed, um, but it allows them the chance to play, which on its own, it's a significant positive. On the negative side of that is obviously there's this flow of information, right? So one of the earliest fears with social media and Web 2.0 was that business was going to lose its edge, as it were, uh, because of that free flow of information. Uh, you wouldn't be able to price discriminate. You wouldn't be able to price things correctly. You wouldn't be able to do much of anything that we were able to do in Web 1.0. And that went away because we're actually able to capture information about the consumers. And that might change in the future. There's a discussion about privacy. But a lot of value was created by the largest firms and the smallest ones in terms of generating insights and understanding people without being intrusive uh, and asking them questions, stopping you in the mall. It's actually generating insight by virtue of just existing in the social spaces. So even on that side, you get a lot of positives. Pinar, what do you think about this? Well, I think that um, I, I completely agree, first of all, with Cami and Felipe. There are positives and negatives. And at the individual level, it seems like the negatives should not definitely not be ignored. If, if anything, they may be more than the positives when it comes to social media. One of the things that's interesting to understand about platforms is that um, in order for platforms to generate data, which can be used in many ways, for example, in advertising or in you know, providing better um, kind of interaction between users and providers, let's say in Uber, etc. But in uh, social media platforms in particular, in order to generate data, the platform provider will want to show us content that we have to react to. And so that's why we see a bit of this polarization and of these negative effects and, you know, uh, people joining uh, all sorts of things that they wouldn't otherwise join because the platform benefits from the fact that we show a reaction to what's uh, shown us on the platform. And so I think that's, in a sense, important to understand that part of the negative um, reaction that we're showing to platforms in terms of affecting our psychology comes from the very nature of how the platform functions. It's an interesting point to, you know, basically saying it holds a mirror up to us as humanity, as, as society, and that therefore means we're going to get warts and all. We'll get the good, but we'll also get the bad. And as, as all of you were speaking, you know, the obvious other point to bring up in terms of, say, Felipe, your, your terminology about information flows is, of course, misinformation flows. So uh, with, we'll come back to that, but I just wanted to remind everyone to, to definitely share questions with us in, in the chat. And, uh, Let's let's pause for a minute though and have a look at our poll um, to see if there's uh, some prevailing opinion here that uh, that we can react to. So look at this. We've got uh, you know, sort of a fairly split opinion here, but uh, maybe the the opposite uh, split to what I was expecting. Anyway, um, the Saints are winning. Cami, what do you think? 
Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm surprised by this as well, especially as I mentioned, uh, popular press does like to kind of seize on some of the negative aspects. But uh, I, I think what is maybe being reflected here is the kind of natural understanding by some of our listeners that, uh, and, and what Pinar and Felipe obviously brought up as well, is this idea that platforms have some control over how the platforms are designed that kind of facilitate certain things more or less often. But we as users also have a lot of control over the way that we choose to consume these digital platforms and, and specifically um, in social media is what I'm interested in. And so I think what we're finding here is that there are a lot of positive ways that we can use these digital platforms and, and maybe people are becoming a little bit more knowledgeable or savvy to their own benefit and being able to use these, these platforms more appropriately or at least in ways that facilitate their psychological well-being or maybe even their small businesses. Um, and so maybe we're seeing some of that. And well, to follow up on that, because I wanted to bring in your research around well-being and, and social media use at this point, because, you know, it, it does hinge on the different ways people are using. It. And I think it's a, it's a good point that you raised that perhaps as a species, we're adapting and finding sort of the good uses versus the, the less good uses. What, what from your research in terms of psychological well-being and, and, and using these platforms, what are the uses that tend to be better for people? Yeah, um, so I, I have some uh, research uh, looking at uh, social media use and its relationship with psychological well-being. And so this is slightly different than life satisfaction and, and happiness. It, it does have a lot more to do with where you think your life is headed and how much support that you feel. Um, but so this general concept of psychological well-being, what we find is that social media use or increased social media use has a small positive effect on psychological well-being. And um, th that should be expected because as you can imagine, social media use is not one of the major factors affecting your psychological well-being. So much more, you know, other life factors like how fulfilling your work is and the closeness of your family and general positive outlook. And, and so there are a lot of other factors, multifaceted factors that influence your psychological well-being. But we are still seeing a relationship. And most importantly, and I think what you're sort of um, implying is this idea that what we found is that effect really is driven by the types of connections that we have or that we make on social media. So if we're using social media to connect with people who are close friends and family members, people that we, we want this deep, supportive interaction with, that's what's really driving our boosts in psychological well-being. So we can obviously use social media in a variety of different ways, but what seems to be most important is this connectedness with close others, um, truly social, social interaction, so to speak. Um, I did want to qualify this slightly is that this research was conducted outside of the pandemic. And so we, we can't maybe say as much. Um, obviously, what I think is coming out of this from the recent research is that people are using social media and, and other digital platforms to connect with close others. And what we're seeing is we're sort of losing some of those weaker ties. Um, so the people that you say hi to in the hallway or chat with the barista when you pick up your coffee. And so 
what we're seeing is um, it could be a very complicated story right now, but when life sort of operates as normal, social media does effectively help us connect with close others, and that does boost our psychological well-being. So let's, we talked a bit about social media, and I'm sure it's going to come back to us once we start getting some questions from, from all of you who are watching. But I wanted to expand a little bit beyond, uh, I guess, the familiar social media platforms. And I'm going to come to you, Pinar. Let's talk about other types of platforms. What are some of the ones that we don't think about as much? Uh, thanks, Andrew. I think that there are many different types of platforms as that uh, we as consumers don't realize exist. And some of these are platforms that entrepreneurs actually find really valuable. So, for example, B2B platforms are really rising in finance and in, you know, in different areas, uh, in professional services. You can get advice much more easily from professionals through platforms now. And um, I was glad to see that the saints were actually in the, in the up. And I think that maybe if you look at it from a business point of view, not from a social media and individual point of view, but from a business point of view, what a platform does is it can really democratize a market because it allows individuals or small firms to really participate and find buyers rather than, you know, having, as Philippa said at the beginning, having to spend lots of marketing dollars. And so, and the review system, of course, works in their favor. The, the better they do, the more visible they become on the platform. And so um, this is a great way for entrepreneurs to actually reach uh, uh, consumers and end users. And you can also think about sharing economy, for example. Sharing platforms have been around for almost 10 years now, and I've done a bit of research on them. And what we see really is that they can really help with, um, you know, uh, understanding how we can use resources better so these flats or you know summer homes that stay idle or bikes that don't get used or even cars that uh, don't get used they can really find uh, usage uh, through platforms so there's actually a lot of benefit out there and when it comes to sharing platforms i think that benefit is actually quite high so felipe building off of, of what panar was just saying i mean you also mentioned this notion of democratization before. And so I kind of want to go with that a little bit further because I think it's a it's a really important feature of digital platforms in, in all their various ways, whether we're talking about, you know, me starting a business of selling shoes on Instagram or or the B2B applications and, and sharing economy applications that, that Pinar was just talking about. So what are your thoughts on this and where do you see this headed? You know, can we all basically become uh, entrepreneurs by taking advantage of, of the uh, digital platforms? And, and if so, well, what, what do these platforms actually do for us other than giving us an audience? Yeah, I'll start there. And I might take a slightly more towards the center view here in a second. Okay. Because I have to touch on, on my research on the true sinners. But <laughs> I think one of the first things here is this recognition that it lowers some barriers to entry. So what you get is a cheaper play for you to come in and kind of get started. Um, I've seen similarly the, the the rise in B2B and increase in B2B, like finding suppliers, identifying commercial networks. It just becomes so much easier for you to identify partners, um, to actually grow your market presence and, and exist in other uh, uh, regions, right? So market entry and finding a local partner is just has made it that much easier for anybody to kind of go and participate. So the barriers are down and you can imagine that for the larger players and established players, then the, the response is going to be, what is the strategy that I take in order to 
increase other sorts of barriers. If the cost of competition has gone down, how do I kind of maintain my advantage as a massive player? Um, and largely, some of my research has shown like actually data control and maintaining those relationships is where they're maintaining their barrier uh, and power. Relatedly, uh, Kevin brought up like changes with the pandemic. Uh, and I think the work from home situation also plays here in a way. So if you just bear with me for a second, is that all of our companies, I mean, I'm clearly not teaching from Oxford right this moment, right? Like I'm in uh, a room in my house. Our companies are shattered and distributed. So all of our employees, at least for a year, existed and operated across these platforms. Um, and we had to work through uh, these systems in order to participate. The potential then there is for you to be an employee anywhere um, and, and exist and interact in any way that you might want. So the firm is no longer necessarily this coherent, stable pillar that you have to go and travel to and exist. You have this much more distributed system for even labor, uh, much less like advices, Pinar mentioned, or finding funding or so on. So like, it's really potentially quite disruptive. There's negative that comes with this though, that's leveraging the same platform, but for criminal ends. So they're taking advantage, it's the same tool, right? Nothing wrong with the tool itself, but humans being the creative agents that they are just decided, well, if I can find sources of supply for um, whatever agricultural product I can get at scale, why don't I inject and use the same systems to transact in uh, illegal wildlife? You know, uh, tiger skins, rhino horn, uh, you name it. Uh, we've been able to find and identify and map that product network. So you end up with the same advantages being given to other individuals that you perhaps don't want to have access to those performance enhancements. You just want, you know, proper nice businesses to, to flourish not crime to go along with it, but we're seeing that happen at the same pace. So I want to come to some, uh, some questions from, uh, from you around the world. And, and one thing that, oh, actually a couple of things we'll pick up on, first of all, is, is from Layla, who you know, mentioned the poll and, and, and showing more saints and, and questioned, do we think that this is sort of the perspective as, you know, as consumers of, of these platforms? Or do we think that this is coming more from the, the perspective, uh, I guess, a business perspective as the uh, creators of content or users of these platforms for some of the purposes that uh, you, Felipe and Pinar, were just talking about? Does anyone on the panel have a view? Cami, you know, do, do, do you think the lens we all see these things through is more of a, a user-consumer lens? Or do you think we're a little bit more, um, I guess, multifaceted in our, our thoughts because I have a tendency to focus on the individual consumer, I, I'm way too biased, I think, to offer a real opinion here. But um, yeah, I think that we, we're we all um, kind of amateur psychologists and it's possible. Um, I, I don't know the mix of the group. I think that that would be very enlightening if we, if we had a lot of people who were um, you know, regularly using these for, for business purposes. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess I just naturally took the perspective of the individual consumer, but that's just probably belying my background more than anything else. Well, you are a consumer psychologist, uh, so yeah. I, I would expect that. Um, but it's quite interesting, really. I mean, we, we don't know, but, uh, you know, I, I'm also not sure that we necessarily feel the negative effects, you know, ourselves as individual users or consumers, unless they're really negative. 
So examples of, uh, you know, hate speech, online bullying, those sorts of things. Obviously, if we see that, it's quite, you know, visceral. But the more subtle psychological effects, and Cammy, you you talked about, you know, your research are showing small but detectable effects here, um, suggest that maybe we we might be seeing the positives, but maybe not, you know, seeing the negatives as much because we just don't feel them or we're using rose-tinted glasses. I I don't know. But I think uh, the points that Felipe and Pinar, you raised about sort of more from the business side, I think, uh, you know, you both provided pretty compelling arguments, I thought, for the positives here. Um, but I don't think it's, you know, without, you know, potential confusion or costs or complexity. And so there's a, a question uh, that came in from Sarah thinking about the platforms as businesses. She specifically mentioned subscription business models such as Disney Plus or Hulu or Netflix, you know, the thinking of those as platforms in, in this case for entertainment distribution. So from that standpoint, this doesn't have the democratized B2B access aspect of it. You know, I can't go and, you know, make Andrew's home movie and suddenly distribute that through Netflix, as entertaining as I'm sure that would be. Uh, I could put it on YouTube, right, as a user-generated content platform. Um, but we do have the the sort of the closed platforms, if you will, that are making markets in different ways. And so what, what do you think about those types of platforms versus the very democratized ones? You know, I guess there's a place for both, but what are the implications of, of I guess, the more closed platform for the way we think about this? Uh, Pinar, maybe I'll go to you first, then, then Felipe. Sounds great. So um, I think we need to maybe differentiate different types of platforms here. So we have platforms where um, individuals or small firms can interact either with one another. And those types of platforms can, can be for sharing or for different types of businesses. And some of them might be illegal, etc. But when it comes to platforms such as Disney Plus and Netflix, we're thinking of a platform where um, individuals are on the user side, but then the content is to a large extent generated or controlled by the platform. And that type of platform really does create a bit of a kind of a monopolistic situation. And the main reason for that is that you know, the more data that platform has, the better that the platform can um, really tailor uh, its content to the users. You know, Netflix has better and better programs. Why? Because they know you and they, they know what you will like. And so, you know, the new things that are being produced for Netflix with all sorts of famous art, uh, actors and actresses um, are actually really based on the data that Netflix has based on your usage and how many minutes of a movie you watched, etc. And so I think that when you differentiate in that way, you start to see that the more data a platform has, the more it has uh, tendencies for a monopoly. But we need to then take away the obviously the ones where individuals get to participate as providers as well. When the content, whatever services, products are actually being provided by a platform, then uh, the data really creates a monopolistic situation. That's why we don't see many platforms surviving in the same area. It's typically one or at most two. It's a really good point, and 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 you know, glad that you brought up data because I think you know this has come up uh, now in a couple of questions. You know, a, a LinkedIn user in London, we don't have your name, I apologize. Um, you know, has exactly asked about sort of you know the implications when we come to thinking about the data that all these platforms of of all all types really are collecting. Um, you know, they've referred specifically to to social media platforms. Um, but I think we could think about e-commerce platforms. We could think about all sorts of uh, contexts here where, you know, to your point, Pinar, data is being collected and it's a real asset 
um, you know, for the platforms them, themselves. Uh, so, Felipe, I want to ask you about about data and about data ethics uh, in this context, because you know you're um, you know an expert on this. Uh, you know, you teach on our Oxford Exec Diploma in AI for Business, and and you teach classes on on AI and machine learning applied to marketing. So school us a little bit on these data issues when we think about this this asset that the platforms themselves are generating. Yeah, so let's start by just saying and simplifying it too, it's very messy. Uh, and, and mostly because you can think like, we're having a global discussion, right? Um, and it's very hard to have a global discussion when you have localized regional regulations. So even the reality of one given platform might change on what it's required to do uh, with respect to data and information. Um, with that said, that's kind of like a, a you know table stakes. The, the bare minimum that you need to do is to be a legitimate platform and kind of behave according to the local regulations. Um, and at that point, we then expect that people's uh, the, these managers are going to take a more powerful stance, uh, let's say, and that you're going to take a higher moral ground and provide additional benefits to the customer. Now, an interesting thing is we have had report after report and kind of academic study after academic study that say that even though uh, uh, an individual might say, I want privacy and I want to restrict my access to my information, uh, they almost never behave in that way. So you end up with what's termed the privacy paradox where we say we want to be private, we want to control of information, but when given that opportunity to do so, it goes away, right? Like you behave like as, as soon as you're given the opportunity, it's like, here's my full name, address, phone number, uh, and all of the pictures on my phone. So it's it's this inconsistency that's very difficult to manage and then uh, regulate around. However, as, you, as everybody mentioned, that is a source of power for the firms. Like the, the larger amount of data that you hold, the better the systems that you can run, and especially as we have ever, ever increasing amount of machine learning being introduced into the systems to keep you on a platform, as Pinar mentioned, right? Like the content is getting better because it's learning. Learning takes this data. So the fight, um, and this is related to, I think, research that you're alluding to that I published last year, is the fight is over this access and permission and control over data. So it's not so much that customers want privacy, is that we as a platform want to give privacy and create barriers to our competitors so they can't take our customer data away from us um, or have the same access to the data that we have. So we can run the best learning algorithms, uh, generate the best content as a result, and our competitors are going to be running less smart, less informed processes and be less competitive in, as a result. Philippa, I think that's that's super interesting when it comes to um, privacy. And one of the things that um, it would be great to add is that um, regulators are very much realizing how um, data and access to data is kind of really uh, driving competition now. And um, we did some research in, in banking recently. And what we're seeing, especially in the UK and EU, is that there's a concept called open banking or PSD2, you might have heard of it. And the, the basic concept is that in order for a new player to compete in the banking sector, they would need access to consumers' data in order to offer them better services, right? However, consumers wouldn't trust um, a, um, a newcomer with their data. 
And so what we see is that regulators have created this concept of open banking where a new player with the consent of a consumer can actually electronically connect to a bank in order to get access to your information as long as you've given electronic consent to then look at that and say, okay, based on you know the way that you're spending money, you really should be doing this or that in order to pay off your um, uh, loan sooner. And so what we start to see really is that this type of uh, regulation, that regulators are understanding the importance of data, first of all, but also that uh, consumers are really starting to um, make choices in terms of whether they want to share data in order to uh, get access to better services. And interestingly, the research has found that the most activity in terms of data sharing in open banking is in lending. And it apparently it's because and, and now it makes sense to us, but we didn't realize at that time that in order when people are in need of money, they're actually ready to get a little bit out of their comfort zone and share more details in order to get a better rate. And so it seems like even this data and, you know, data sharing and privacy issues are really transforming the banking sector as well. You're listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times with me, Peter Tufano. In this episode, we're talking about digital platforms with my Oxford side colleagues, Dr. Kami Kralik, Associate Professor of Marketing, Professor Pinar Oskan, Professor of Entrepreneurship and Innovation, Dr. Felipe Tomas, Associate Professor of Marketing, and Professor Andrew Stephen, Associate Dean of Research and L'Oreal Professor of Marketing, who's chairing this discussion. The panel is now gonna to turn to the complex relationship between companies such as Facebook and Google and the news industry. We've seen this hit the headlines in Australia following the government's new legislation on news publisher rights. So are the Facebooks and Googles of this world saints out there to support journalism, or are they sinners who are just stealing the local press's lunch? Felipe Thomas is up first. It's difficult to put like in those clean buckets. One of the concerns that I have around this is the transfer of responsibility towards the platforms themselves. Um, in the sense that they are not journalistic entities, right? Like, so when we say if somebody like Facebook, for example, or Google is suddenly held responsible for the user generated content or shared content, um, then suddenly you're transferred, you made them the police or the agent in this relationship that has the responsibility to validate and confirm and then censor and remove content that they deem to be inappropriate. Um, and that's where I start to feel slightly uncomfortable, where at no point did I allow or give permission to Facebook to curate content in that sense, uh, to provide restrictions or not. And that's true on all sorts of things, uh, not just on news, but all sorts of other content that they've been asked to manage. I, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with putting them in charge of what is acceptable. Okay. Um, Cami, do you have a view on, on this? Yeah, sure. I'm going to take a little bit of an opposing view um, with Felipe. Uh, and I, I totally respect and understand his point. And I, I think that that is an important red flag to consider. But I think that thinking about uh, kind of the onus that is on these social media platforms, because we know that people are disseminating news or user generated news. And the problem is that we often um, have a really good memory for the content of what we're reading, but a really poor memory for the source. 
And especially if that is a sketchy source, it's very easy for us to remember the information, but no longer add the tag of, oh, this was from an uncredible place. And so to some sense, it's really, our psychology is working against us and we do need some help curating accurate and reliable sources of information. And so whether or not we want to put you know, Facebook in charge of that, that's, that's kind of a separate question, but we do need to realize how important it is because we have this tendency to remember this, you know, oh, so-and-so did something horrible and that could be totally not true, but we don't look at the fact that it was like a very right or left-wing source or one that doesn't follow up or check its sources. Uh, so so we, we do have a certain amount of necessity for somebody curating the content. And so uh, should that be regulated, I suppose? And, and, and this, is, this has popped up in, in the chat. So a number of you have sort of raised the question of regulation. Uh, I mean, we touched on it already a little bit, but, but have, have brought it you know, back into the fore, I suppose. Uh, so Panar, I'm curious what you think. You know, he had, how do we actually, I mean, whether, whether we're talking about regulating social media or maybe something you know, more general than that, how can we best govern digital platforms so that we in some sense, you know, maximize the, the, the positives and minimize the potential negatives? Sure. I think that, um, first of all, regulating social media and content uh, uh, on social media is uh, obviously needs to needs to be there to a certain extent. And that's quite different from regulating platforms in general, I think. Um, when it comes to social media, I, I definitely agree with my panelists in that, you know, there's a big responsibility that falls on the shoulders of Facebook and Google. And that, in a sense, puts them also at a conflict because on the one hand, imagine Facebook especially, uh, is almost like being able to hear a million people speak at the same time. And there will be dissonance. You know, we now have access to uh, the opinions of many more people. Normally, I wouldn't know what my former colleagues somewhere else in the world are thinking now, but now I do. And so, um, in a sense, that is not easy to, to, to manage because there will be conflicting views. However, of course, false information, and as Cami uh, rightly said, you know, us not being able to remember the source of the information but the information itself is actually creating a trend of, you know, pushing us into directions that we actually don't understand that we're being pushed into. So I think that it is a very messy, you know, just like Philippe said, it is a very messy topic. And I don't think that regulators are going to figure that out very quickly, but it is definitely very important. Now, the other side of regulating platforms is regulating the monopolistic power of platforms. And that, as we said before, comes from just the sheer amount of data that they have. And a lot of platforms like Google, Facebook, and Amazon have actually started to go into even regulated industries. Uh, you may not know that Google actually has a, um, a partnership with NHS where NHS trusts them with data and then in turn they give AI-based diagnostic services. Now that saves lives and you know that also saves a lot of money to the NHS, but this shows that even in highly regulated industries, these platforms are becoming basically the data keepers. In a recent paper, we called this a, the digital colonization of these uh, highly regulated industries. 
where um, the people who are in excess of that data are starting to rule that industry. And so what the EU and you know other, um, other parts of the world are trying to figure out right now is how much should data be, how much should these platforms be allowed to use data across industries? And if we allow that, how can we break their monopolistic power across industries? So I think that's also a very messy topic, but very much important for us to, to figure out soon. Otherwise, we will end up with no companies other than these big tech platforms. That's a very good point. Although I, I do wonder, I think I might want, and, and I think that the, the context or the use cases matter here. So if we're talking about, you know, uh, AI-driven, you know, health diagnostic services, I probably would want, you know, a, a very advanced uh, company, you know, that's very good at working with data and, and, and processing large amounts of data, such as a Google of the world, to be doing that as opposed to Andrew's startup uh, in my garage, but but I think I think the point is well taken in terms of how do we how do we balance that that sort of that deep expertise which you know we sort of see the 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 rich getting richer or the the massive advantages these tech powerhouses have balance that and and the good that they can bring with the the risk that we are putting all of our eggs in one basket and heading into a very monopolistic world, which is probably uh, not going to be a good thing. Um, but that's all sort of talking about this in the regulated space. And Felipe, I want to I ask you about, you know, uh, I guess the unregulated Wild West or also where, um, where people are anonymous. And I'm thinking about the dark web and, and your research uh, on the dark web here, because uh, I think it, it's, it's important for us to think about, you know, we, we're not just in a world where there are eyes on what's going on. There is a whole other world out there. So through that lens, what are, you, what, what are your thoughts on the sort of issues we're talking about right now? Yeah, so the, the dark web gives us a very interesting counterpoint to the discussion, right? So uh, the dark web is where there's no regulatory eye. I mean, you might have law enforcement chasing people down, but you can think of it as a hyper private environment, uh, meaning that I have technologies in place to really disguise uh, you to the best extent that we can if you follow proper procedure. Um, and really, the, any data leakage that you have as a consumer is essentially your own fault, right? So it's, it's a mistake that you made that information about you was made available to the platform even. So it is as good as a protection as we can get. And I mean, if you know about the dark web and uh, the onion router and so on, that was like Navy development from back in the day on how you manage communication. So it is as secure as they could make it. And that's as private as we can make it. And also as unregulated as we can make it because... The black markets that I study in the dark web are the ones that are trafficking and, you know, humans and drugs and weapons, et cetera. So it's really where there's no, no enforcement, really. Um, so you end up in a weird system where people are free to do. It's, it's like that libertarian dream uh, in a sense of like anything goes and I, I'm able to self-determine and there's no higher power that tells me exactly what to do. You get with a very interesting environment in that the market itself, the systems, the platforms themselves are incredibly efficient. Uh, they're probably better than most of the platforms that we have in terms of finding information, acquiring a good. It's just as easy and as simple as it gets as compared to the ones that we have. So they function better. There's also absolutely no protection for the consumer whatsoever and that most of these platforms end up being scams. Um, and they're just designed as very large, complex honeypots uh, that are going to come in and take everybody's money. And it's just this, the whole system is like, a, as you mentioned, a wild west. 
and a perverse lottery. So what do I get out of it, right? I'm saying this, is the solution purely privacy and just giving privacy and making everything as securely private as possible? No, it isn't because even in, within that system, what we see is rampant exploitation. Uh, people are getting what they want. They're existing and exchanging, but you still have mass loss of property and rights, even though you don't know who you're dealing with. And trust is algorithmic as opposed to social as we've constructed today. So just forcing privacy um, based on what we know from behavior in the dark web in itself is not a solution, even though it's something that we all kind of, as in this conversation, we've been asking for. So I think it's, there's, there's plenty that we can learn there. And, and I'm just sort of thinking about reflecting on what we've been talking about for the last 50 minutes here. You know, we, we've heard a lot of the goods, a lot of the sort of the saints, uh, consistent with the poll that we, we had earlier on. And they seem to me more, in some sense, concrete, you know, things that we can point to and say, yeah, but you can do this or you could do that. And then a lot of the the sort of the the negatives or the sinner uh, elements that, that we're thinking about are fears almost, you know, or, or we're worried about, for example, how data might be used and therefore we look to increase privacy or perhaps increase regulation or new types of regulation as sort of our, our safety nets there. But we're, it's almost kind of like, you know, the, the, the boogeyman is, you know, maybe hiding in my bedroom cupboard or under the bed or something like that. I, I can see all the good stuff and I'm worried about the negative stuff. I'm going to come to you, Cami, about this as, as sort of our resident psychologist uh, on the panel to sort of think about, again, this, this framing that we have because, you know, the facts are the facts. Billions of people use, if we think about consumers, billions of people use all the major digital platforms every single day. You know, and, and, and we communicate through them and, and you know, we, we sort of give our data. We expect some kind of uh, value in return, maybe expect some privacy. But people always say they're very deeply concerned about these things and, and indeed they get talked about quite a lot. So are we, are we worried too much or, or, or is sort of what we're talking about here actually a pretty healthy reflection of balancing the, the pros and the cons or the, the value and the risks? You know, people use these things, but they're worried about these things. So how do we reconcile that, uh, Cami? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I think I like the complexity with which this kind of discussion has uncovered because that's very reflective of what the research shows and really the picture that we're looking at. So um, I think if we were to look at this as focusing solely on centers and maybe implying that the negatives are just worries is a little unbalanced. I think that there's a lot of research that shows that there are real true negatives associated with um, digital platforms. And obviously my particular interest is in social media. Um, and we know that kind of how we use them or even how the platforms organize themselves or, or design themselves tend to create more positive or more negative outcomes. And I think that it's very important that we're cognizant of both sides because it, it truly is um, some of both, really. <laughs> and Pinal, how about from the entrepreneurship standpoint? How do we reconcile these different views? I think from, from the entrepreneurship perspective, it's actually really changed the competitive landscape in many industries. And that is, in a sense, it's not just a worry. It is, we see this happening. And so, for example, we have um, a wonderful incubator over at the business school called Creative Destruction Lab. 
And what we see there is when these um, entrepreneurs come in with their data-driven ventures and you know, they have so much they can offer, one of the first things that they um, hear from investors is, why do you think Google or Amazon couldn't do this? Couldn't they kill your business within a week? And that is a real worry. I think when it comes to entrepreneurship, what companies, what entrepreneurs really need to worry about right now is, can I actually stand against Google or Amazon or imagine that you're selling something, a particular product, when you get to Amazon and once you start to become successful, will Amazon just not manufacture it themselves, just like they do with many other products? And so, you know, they, we are seeing more and more Amazon brands on, on the platform, etc. And so I think that from an entrepreneurship perspective, there is a real worry when it comes to the monopoly of these big tech platforms. And so I guess unless you're from an entrepreneurship perspective, unless you're building your own platform and finding the way to build that market, it's, it's a really fair point. You are putting a lot of, of trust and, and therefore the flip side of trust is in terms of risk. Uh, in in what those platforms might do to your business. So I, I guess, you know, for me as a marketing professor, it's a good reminder that we need to you know, remember that we're, we're not just thinking of these platforms as, as in essence, distribution channels. But if you can build a strong brand, for example, um, develop a very loyal customer base, it means that whatever it is you're offering uh, through an Amazon or other kinds of platforms is less of a commodity that can be easily copied and, you know, have your, have your lunch taken from you so to speak. So I think that's going to bring us to uh, maybe segue into sort of some closing thoughts, because what I wanted to, to then just go through the panel again to, to ask about is, where do we go next with all of this? We've got these different perspectives, and we can think about the, the good and the bad, or the saints and the sinners. But, you know, how, how do we build a, a business community and build a society, quite frankly, that really does optimize because I think you know, you know, platforms have always been here as marketplaces as one example. So the concept of platforms and certainly in the digital world, digital platforms is here to stay. So how do we keep on making the most of the many uh, opportunities while uh, minimizing those those risks? And so I'll, I'll just go through all panel members uh, to, to get your closing thoughts here uh, in the last few minutes. Felipe, you're first. Yeah, uh, just to borrow, I guess, from uh, Pinar's last point, um, it's like there's this been to me, there's been this fascinating transition and thinking in terms of like classic business management and power in the supply chain kind of arguments, right? Like you've just had this relocation of power towards a concentration on the platforms, which no, wasn't necessarily the case before when it was just manufacturing. I don't expect that's going to change. I don't expect that we're suddenly going to have a shift um, that we're going to wake up tomorrow and they're not going to be a powerful player in the sense specifically because of all the things that we said that what they allow uh, in terms of ability for new businesses or existing businesses to leverage and they can do it at scale today. Um, so like they're very powerful in that sense and the counters, as you mentioned, Andrew, is like the, the marketing and traditional creating assets that they can't recreate. I think that my takeaway is that like, like a lot of great tech, this is tech. Uh, it is a tool. It is a system. Um, and the humans are the ones that change what impact it has on other humans. So you can take this and create the most enabling platform, right, uh, to allow people to flourish, create new businesses, create economic and social prosperity. 
or you can, you know, use it to put people in a box and ship them across country. Like it's, it, it really can be as great as we want to make it or as terrible as we want to make it. And I think with that, I understand the fears and I think it's healthy to just question, uh, but not too healthy to be afraid to use platforms. So it's that balance, um, you know, trust but verify, use it and exploit it to the best ability that you can. Thank you, Felipe. Final thoughts, Cami? Yeah, um, so from my perspective, I think this discussion is centered around center and saint platforms, but I'd like to say it's center and saint usage. And for our well-being um, as people and as individuals, I think the best way we can think about using these platforms is to foster deeper social connections with people that we care about and avoid a, a lot of this sort of unnecessary interactions with people we don't know, which can spur things like uh, envy and loneliness and, and social comparison that makes us feel bad about ourselves. So really um, trying to understand and take control of the way that um, we use the platform and also push the platforms to better design their product to encourage the kind of usage that benefits us as people. Thank you, Cami and Pinar, your thoughts. Um, so I completely agree with uh, with everyone that we are going to use platforms. We're going to use them even more in the future. So it's not a matter of, oh, you know, how do we move away from them at all? But to me, it really comes down to two things right now. The first one is regulation and regulation, not just in terms of uh, kind of how much data are you allowed to keep as a platform? Can you use it across sectors to gain monopolistic power, but also within that platform, are you allowed to create behavioral nudges such as, you know, putting digital, digital confetti on someone when they've just made an investment and people ended up killing themselves because of these uh, kind of behavioral nudges that happened on digital platforms. So regulating uh, how the platform is designed uh, and what kind of behavior it encourages, but also regulating data storage and data sharing. And then the second part is education and that education, obviously platforms are not incentivized to educate us in terms of what it, they can do to us. Right. And so it really falls um, on the shoulders of uh, even education, uh, education institutes. Uh, we need to start educating uh, students as young as primary school students uh, to understand uh, how to use these platforms and how to even give them choice and make them understand better what the platform can do to them. Otherwise, I think uh, we are going to be falling victims to the things that the platforms want us to do. My thanks to Pina Roskam, Cami Kralik, Felipe Tamas, and Andrew Steven. My name is Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Oxford University's Said Business School. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and take a moment to rate and review us. In the next episode, the last in the current series, we'll be exploring innovation in healthcare and why it needs to be community-centered, not patient-centered. You'll find more information about this and all the Leadership in Extraordinary Time series at OxfordAnswers.org. Until next time, thanks for listening.